Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. Favorite quotations about age comes from Thomas Jefferson. He said that we should never judge a president by his age, only by his work. And ever since he told me that, I've stopped worrying. <laughs> that was just one joke from President Ronald Reagan, who had a saddlebag full of them. Good old-fashioned set-piece jokes about dogs and Catholic priests and the privation of the Soviet Union. The potatoes will be piled high to God, said a Soviet farmer. Comrade, said the Russian official, this is the Soviet Union. We don't believe in God. Yes, said the farmer, and this is the Soviet Union. There are no potatoes. Reagan loved a good joke. Hollywood had taught him how to tell them. But the real secret sauce was that Reagan's jokes were often self-deprecating. Why? Why was that the secret sauce? Well, that's what we're going to delve into into this episode of Whistle Stop. And why? The capacity for humor may be the most important presidential quality of all. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Our whistle stop today is April 30th, 2011, and we are at the windowless spaceship embedded in the middle of the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. We're at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and we're also in the historical present again, which we'll see if we can sustain. It's the dinner where the president and members of the press have come for an evening of jokes. We're tucked into one of the hundreds of tables, decked occasionally by hurrying waiters, pinballing through the swells in black tie from the capital city, who sit hard by each other, cheek by jowl for a cheeky evening of howls. There are celebrities present, but not as many as think there are present, because like most things in Washington, the needle on the self-important register is fibrillating toward the upper end of the register. There is more inflation than when Ford was president. On this night, President Obama is at the lectern. He is preparing for a re-election campaign in 2012. And just the day before, he had gone to the White House press room to announce that he was producing his long-form birth certificate to prove to those who needed proof that he had been born in the United States. He had, of course, provided a certificate of live birth before that. But that wasn't enough for the conspiracy mongers, and so he presented the long-form birth certificate. This was, of course, an indignity most of his supporters believe was forced on him by a not-at-all-veiled effort to play on his race, to put it plainly as they saw it. The questions into his birthplace were really a question of his legitimacy based on the color of his skin. The national leader of this movement to raise questions about the president's legitimacy is a billionaire businessman and real estate tycoon from New York City. His name is Donald Trump. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? I, I think he probably... He have to? Because I have to and everybody else has to. Whoopi. I'm sure Why wouldn't he show... show excuse me. <laughs> Why? No, excuse me. You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country. Trump is fresh from New Hampshire as he sits in the ballroom in 2011 at the Washington Hilton, where in New Hampshire... On the very day that President Obama had released that long-form birth certificate, the business tycoon held a press conference. Originally scheduled to bring attention to the matter of the president's questionable birth, but which had been somewhat scooped by the president having produced the long-form birth certificate. At that press conference, Mr. Trump 
took credit for solving this national crisis. And so on that evening, President Obama and Donald Trump sat within spitting distance of each other, and perhaps it might have come to that. To spitting, I mean. But instead, the president showered the tycoon with jokes, all of them at Donald Trump's expense. Donald Trump is here tonight. Now, I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? (laughs) All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. Then President Obama showed what the White House would look like if Donald Trump were elected president. On the facade of the White House was written Trump White House Casino and Golf Course, and two scantily clad women were in the fountain in front of it. From last week's episode on golf playing to this one on joke telling, you might think that we at Whistle Stop headquarters have gone a little fuzzy in the head. We haven't. We've got a big claim to make about presidential humor and the relationship to temperament. Also, the White House Correspondents Association dinner is next week, and we thought it would be fun to tell a little story about this particular one in 2011, given the proximity of this year's event, but we're not saying any of that out loud. President Trump will not attend this year's dinner. He'll be in Michigan at a campaign rally. I was with him last year when he attended a rally on the night of the White House Correspondents Association dinner. He was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania while the dinner was taking place, and in an effective bit of counter-programming, President Trump used the fancy evening taking place back in Washington to attack the journalists who cover him. There's another big gathering taking place tonight in Washington, D.C. Did you hear about it? A large group of Hollywood actors and Washington media are consoling each other in a hotel ballroom in our nation's capital right now. They are gathered together for the White House Correspondents' Dinner without the president. And I could not possibly be more thrilled than to be more than 100 miles away from Washington Swamp Spending my evening with all of you 
and with a much, much larger crowd and much better people, right? The first piece of evidence in our argument for paying more than giddy attention to a president's capacity for humor was raised by James Comey, who this week was on so many television sets promoting his book that he might have actually been on the closed-circuit TV set in the lobby of your doctor's office. In his kickoff interview with George Stephanopoulos, the former FBI director remarked upon a character trait, or lack of one, that he said was very striking in President Trump. Comey, I've never seen him laugh, not in public, not in private. And so I went and tried to find examples of videos where he's laughing, and I couldn't find one that was really a genuine laugh. So there we have claim number one. James Comey seems to find this a serious problem in the president. And it's in keeping with Comey's the larger aim of his book, which is to take specific events and, and give them a larger meaning to rise above them and to evaluate the president in a larger context. So now this is ominous, according to James Comey, but why is it ominous? Does Comey have a point? Well, it is the question of the president's lack of a sense of humor that caused us to start the whistle stop with that White House correspondence dinner back when he was just civilian Donald Trump. For some, that dinner is a signature moment in the Donald Trump evolution. It was at that moment in 2011 when the burn of the spanking was fresh that Donald Trump vowed he would seek the office of the presidency. What? Is that true? Some people think it is. The Frontline, the PBS Frontline documentary that ran after the conventions, devoted to the choice facing American voters between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, opened with that White House Correspondents Association dinner. Here's Omarosa Manigo, formerly an aide in the Trump White House, about that routine from President Obama. But it just kept going and going, and he just kept hammering him. And I thought, oh, Barack Obama is starting something that I don't know if he'll be able to finish. The frontline documentary that opens with this scene at the White House Correspondents' Dinner quotes others who promote this theory that the jokes led to the Trump campaign. Here's longtime Trump friend and brass-knuckled, knee-you-in-the-groin political operative Roger Stone. I think that is the night that he resolves to run for president. I think that he is kind of motivated by it. Maybe I'll just run. Maybe I'll show them all. It is the ultimate revenge to become the most powerful man in the universe. At the end there, that was Amorosa weighing in one more time. You may remember that she has since left the White House uh, and now says she fears for the country because Donald Trump is president. Whether this was the start of Donald Trump's march to the presidency, he'd been flirting with the idea for years. It was an instance in which he did not take the joking about himself very well. Though, as an aside, those who wish Donald Trump ill remember and rewrite that evening in 2011, as if each molecule on his being screamed out in barely contained rage. It tells you more about a lot of the people in their recollections of that evening than it does necessarily Donald Trump. Donald Trump did not, it is true, engage in any of the usual Washington behaviors in response to his public drubbing by the sitting president. The norm in these kind of situations, when you're made fun of, is that you're supposed to show you're not sweating the abuse. You laugh at yourself, maybe a little too much, but that's okay, and you let it roll off your back. Donald Trump did not do that. It's true. He kind of kept a, a thin, tight-lipped smile. But he also was not 
going off like a tea kettle, which some of these recollections have suggested he was. Still, back to Comey's claim, it is very hard to find, and maybe even impossible, to find a situation in which Donald Trump can be really caught laughing in a fulsome way, and he almost never makes fun of himself. Now, why does this matter? Well, some people who have thought a lot about leadership and strategy keep coming back to this idea of a sense of humor. And here's the take. Only if you have a sense of humor can you see the absurdity and craziness of life, and specifically also about yourself. The presidency is a weird and warping job. If you are too overly serious about it, you will lose your perspective. If you lose your perspective, you not only will not be able to do your job, not be able to adapt when mistakes are made, not be able to recognize the distance between the president as a public office figure and you yourself. The irony that comes with humor, responding to it and authoring it, suggests distance and cartilage, the bouncy stuff between your psyche, your sense of identity, and the external world. To the extent that you can recognize the distance between the two, see the play, be okay with the the play, suggests that you can handle the inevitable insanity of the job. Now, that's me riffing. Let's turn to some people who know what they're talking about. I interviewed the eminent Yale historian John Lewis Gaddis recently about his book, Grand Strategy. And you can listen to that on the CBS podcast for CBS This Morning which uh, will be out in a week or so. Anyway, in this interview, which we'll now hear a little bit of, Gaddis, not prompted really by me, suddenly makes the case for laughter as a central condition in a good leader. Here's Gaddis. A sense of humor, I think, is critical in all of this. It's that ability to assess yourself, not take yourself too seriously. And I think that's something that uh, Octavian Augustus had. I think it's something Elizabeth I had. Uh, certainly FDR had it, but at the same time, Xerxes did not. Philip II did not. Napoleon certainly did not. Even Woodrow Wilson did not. I see that as one of the key indicators. Because if they can laugh at themselves, it rec- it, it, it demonstrates what in their character? I think it demonstrates, first of all, self-awareness uh, and uh, an awareness of one's own limitations. And that's part of what I mean when I say that you have to be aware that your capabilities are not compatible with your aspirations in all respects, you see. So uh, a sense of that, do you regard it as a tragedy, as Philip II did, or do you uh, regard it as a comedy, as I think uh, in some ways uh, FDR, Octavian, others uh, did? The ability to assess yourself, to self-correct, that's always easier for somebody who has a sense of humor as opposed to somebody who's taking himself seriously. It's the basis for one of the great distinctions that Isaiah Berlin made uh, in uh, his philosophical writing about two kinds of liberty. He said that uh, positive liberty is the kind of liberty in which you are told how to be happy. You are told what to do. Someone with a very heavy hand has decided that you will follow this orthodoxy or this ideology or this particular development model or something like that. And in the end, you will obey. It's almost Orwellian. Positive liberty starts out sounding good, but the way he describes it is terrible. 
Negative liberty is respect for individual autonomy. Negative liberty is the freedom to decide for yourself what makes you uh, happy. And that would be democracy. That would be autonomy. That would be, um, if you're managing an empire, leaving a considerable amount of autonomy within the units of the empire, which the Romans did. So did the British. I think this gets back to this temperament thing because it does seem to me, I know very few positive liberty people, that is, ideologues, that is, Orwellian leaders. I don't think I know any who had a sense of humor, right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know a consider, of a considerable number of um, uh, negative liberty people who did, and I think that may be another one of these key indicators, a canary in a mine or something like that that tells you something. So the idea is that without humor, you have no temperament, and without temperament, you are an authoritarian. Frightening. Or, as G.K. Chesterton said, Madmen are always serious. They go mad from lack of humor. Chris Saliza tried out uh, James Comey's claim that you couldn't find Donald Trump laughing, and he came up with this instance uh, where the president was caught laughing in an unguarded way. Is that a dog? Uh-oh. <laughs> when it comes to making self-deprecating jokes, the closest... Well, we could find was the president making a sort of meta point for us in his recent appearance before the Gridiron Club. The president joked, My staff was concerned heading into this dinner that I couldn't do self-deprecating humor. They were worried about it. They said, Can you do this? And I told them not to worry. Nobody does self-deprecating humor better than I do. Humor was certainly a, a characteristic of our two greatest presidents, Abe Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Abe Lincoln said about one long-winded speaker, he can compress the most words into the smallest ideas of any man I ever met. Lincoln also had a favorite story about a time when he was splitting rails and a man carrying a rifle walked up to him and demanded that Lincoln look him directly in the eye. Lincoln stopped his work and obliged the man, who continued to stare silently at Lincoln for some minutes. Finally, the man told Lincoln that he had promised himself years ago that if he ever met a man uglier than himself, he would shoot him. Lincoln looked at the man's rifle, pulled open his shirt, puffed out his chest, and allegedly exclaimed, If I am uglier than you are, I don't want to live. Go ahead and shoot. This joke, by the way, is from the book Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life by Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard. Roosevelt was also a funny guy. During one of his fireside chats, he told the story of a Maine fisherman with a hearing problem. Told to cut back on his drinking that in order to help his hearing problem, the fisherman ignored the advice. When asked why he would not stop turning up the bottle, the fisherman replied, I liked what I was drinking so much better than what I was hearing from FDR that I just kept on drinking. FDR also noticed crucial thing about the public. The overwhelming majority, said FDR, of Americans are possessed of two great qualities, a sense of humor and a sense of proportion. There you go. There's the link. Temperament and humor. What is temperament but really a sense of proportion? Understanding, I mean, temperament's got more to it than that, but certainly a sense of proportion recognizes this distance. What is proportion? It's not mistaking something for bigger than it is, which often has to do with your own personal feelings getting in the way. So now we've got Comey, Gaddis, Chesterton, FDR, 
making the case. But what about another practitioner? So we'll roll in on the on the evidence tray. You roll the evidence tray because some people just carry in the evidence tray. Anyway, I once asked former Defense Secretary Robert Gates about the key attributes of a successful president. He named temperament and a sense of humor. I mean that in a very serious way, Gates said. I think a sense of humor and a sense of the absurd reflects a balance and a perspective, right? Remember that proportion. And a perspective on the world that is very healthy. Of all the presidents that I worked for, there are only two who had no discernible sense of humor. Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter. I rest my case, said Gaddis. Now, it's not true that Jimmy Carter was without any humor. When he left office, Carter used to say, my esteem in this country has gone up substantially. It is very nice now when people wave at me, they use all of their fingers. While we're in the joke land, one of the perhaps apocryphal but amusing jokes that uh, was told about Ronald Reagan or that Reagan told, and this is contained also in that book, Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility uh, at Work and in Life. Um, Reagan was apparently out riding on horseback with the Queen of England. And um, and I should note, by the way, just before I finish this story, that the um, Treating People Well book was written by um, two former White House social secretaries, Lee Berman, who worked for George and Laura Bush, and um, Jeremy Bernard, who worked for Michelle and Barack Obama. Anyway, so the story goes. Reagan is out on the horseback with Queen Elizabeth of England. They're enjoying a a ride through the countryside, and the horse upon which the queen was riding had an extended bout of flatulence. The queen said, oh, President Reagan, uh, I'm so sorry. And the president said, oh, don't worry about it. I thought it was the horse. But back to our dinner. Roxanne Roberts of the Washington Post was Donald Trump's host at the 2011 dinner. It was apparently bring a birther to dinner night, and of course he was a major draw. Roberts has knocked back Roger Stone's account and uh, the various others who have argued uh, in their armchair psychologist chair that this night was the origin of the Trump campaign. But this doesn't this dinner doesn't necessarily need to be the one that launched Donald Trump's career. We've used it, of course, as the basis of our argument for the importance of humor. But it also stands as a major fork in the road in American politics, because while it was or seemed at the time, an outlandish mountain of yucks to think that Donald Trump would be president five years later, he would have the last laugh. But the night and this episode are also not just about a sense of humor, or rather, it's not just about jokes. If our theory is that a sense of humor is connected to that elusive but important quality of presidential temperament, then there was another aspect of that dinner that was on display that night at the White House Correspondents' Dinner of that temperament. It's just that no one knew that this display of temperament was taking place, or I should say only two or three people in all of Washington knew it. The day before the dinner, while President Obama was dispatching with the birther controversy, he was also dispatching with something else, Osama bin Laden. Friday before the Saturday dinner, he had given the final order on the raid on bin Laden's compound. He then continued his prep for the White House Correspondents Association dinner. There was a bin Laden joke in the mix of jokes, and the president asked that it be taken out. None of his speechwriters knew anything was taking place. They just thought he didn't like the quality of the joke. Almost no one in the White House knew the operation was taking place, and so there was no suspicion. The president didn't let on. 
On that Friday, he'd been flooded with the various duties that the president must participate in. He flew down to Alabama to visit with families ravaged by a recent tornado, and he ended the day in Florida visiting with former Congresswoman Gabriella Giffords and her astronaut husband, she the one who had been shot at a campaign event. This is one measure of temperament, to be able to make the decision that could have gone horribly wrong to take out bin Laden. And then, with the raid not having taken place, with the success of your presidency and perhaps its ultimate judgment hanging in the balance, Obama was still able to carry out the rest of the duties of his job. That is a test of temperament. Who says that? Robert Gates, who referred back to this decision on the raid and the president's ability to carry it out as a signature test of temperament and display of it of all the presidents he had worked with. Gates, of course, not a fulsome, not a complete fan of President Obama's. Temperament is required because a president has to keep a head full of secrets and yet go through the day like a normal person or as much of a normal person as possible. Of all the secrets a president has had to carry, the details of the bin Laden operation that President Obama had to carry was probably one of the biggest. The president may have a special delight in bringing that tiny little locked box with the secret in his head to the White House Correspondents Association dinner because much of the audience lives to publish a president's secrets before he can reveal them. And there ends our investigation into the question of presidential temperament and humor and the relationship between the two. Before we end, we are recording on the day that Barbara Bush has died. She, too, the former first lady, also knew about the power of humor. She referred to it in a famous commencement speech she gave at Wellesley University. And life really must have joy. It's supposed to be fun. One of the reasons I made the most important decision of my life to marry George Bush is because he made me laugh. It's true, sometimes we laugh through our tears, but that shared laughter has been one of our strongest bonds. Find the joy in life, because as Ferris Bueller said on his day off, (laughs) life moves pretty fast, and you don't stop and look around once in a while, you're going to miss it. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Have you heard the one about Brian Rosenwald and the fuzzy-headed journalist? It's too long to tell. And thanks to Claire Fahey of CBS This Morning and Dustin Gervais of CBS Radio, who helped make this all come about. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks.